Modern Cloister, where we cultivate deeper thinkers and worshipers through conversations about the Christian life, in the same spirit as the community conversations that took place during the Reformation at the Black Cloister, the former monastery and home of Martin Luther and his wife, Katharina von Bora. Today, we are hosting the second in our In the News series, and as we do so, we want to give you a quick overview of how these episodes are going to work. Each month, toward the end of the month, we're going to discuss four to five different items of interest happening in the world and culture around us, specifically from a Christian perspective. If you joined us for the last episode of In the News, we had one large feature story that we spent the most time on, followed by, I believe, three different stories at the end. Today we're going to do something a little bit different in order to get a feel from you on what you guys are preferring, and we're going to do five stories, and we're going to breeze through them and spend the same amount of time on each one and just give you the highlights of what's happening in each of those areas. So with that, we're going to go ahead and dive in, and Kevin is going to bring us our first one, which basically covers the results from a recent Gallup poll that has been that have been really interesting within the community. So talk about those for us. Yeah, a lot of people probably saw this. It actually came out on the last day of the month of March. Um, I posted it on some of our community series because they it really points out some of the things we had talked about. So if you're, you're new to us or you're just catching our news now and the Gallup poll and kind of the history and decline of Christianity – and uh, church community is, is interesting you go check out our decline of community and our future of community because the article that, that you can go find just on the AP wire from Gallup um, goes through a lot of what we talked about where we peaked in the 50s, how it's been trending down, really accelerated decline in the 90s, and then they kind of project in the future. So, so this came out at the end of the month and uh, uh, last last month and thought it was kind of interesting, but then it really kind of exploded. Um, in some ways, I'm not entirely sure why. I think some people are caught off guard, but the the big headline, if you haven't seen it, is less than half of Americans now belong to churches, and, and this is churches, mosques, synagogues. This is have ha, less than half Americans say that they have a membership with a religious institution. So this is the lowest amount uh, recorded from Gallup, which has been around about 100 years, asking this question. So probably not the lowest in history, but it's it's the first time below 50%. I think it peaked around 70, so pretty, pretty big change. Yeah, it is. And there's been a lot of commentary and <clears throat> thoughts provided by some of the, the leading thinkers of our day, including the esteemed Russell Moore and people like Tim Keller, who have been making the rounds on podcasts and writing articles about the implications for some of this. And one of the most widely circulated i would i would assume is the russell moore piece that in in his words talked about some of the reasoning that he was giving behind some of this shift and a lot of what he pointed out and fill in some of these gaps for me is essentially the call for the the younger people who are who are answering this survey and who are not identifying as a member of a, a community are leaving because in his opinion they don't necessarily reject the faith itself but they don't in his words really think we believe and our leaders of these churches mm-hmm. and our, our denominations that we don't actually believe what we're preaching on Sunday mornings because they're witnessing the political divides and the way that that is creeping into our churches and dividing us. And, and so his his piece was very poignant and very uh, challenging, and, and I hope that it continues to circulate, but I'm sure there's some yeah, things in there that you His big line too. was was that it's not that people don't believe in the cross of Christ or the resurrection, as they no longer believe our leaders believe it. And if you mm-hmm. look at people who are clearly doing it for political gain, whether they're 
you know, pastors, evangelists, or politicians all kind of taking up this mantle. And I mean, we, we won't get into politics now, but it, it just really rings hollow. And people are seeing the hypocrisy, which is fine. People are going to change their mind. They call change the mind hypocrisy. People are going to sin, of course. But there's some pretty blatant about faces. Probably the, the most damning one I can think of is back in, oh, I'm going to mess this up, 9 or 12, they pulled... You know, the, the nine groups, we talk about the nine religious groups, and evangelicals were the number one group to say character matters. When they did it again in 15 or 16, we were the least likely to say it matters. I mean, the, the about face for political gain is really turning people off. And so, and we could probably do a whole podcast on this, just about how people identify um, or how the media and pollsters and surveys, but to be fair to them, it, it's it's a self-identification. They ask you how you identify. And so in some ways, the numbers aren't as bad as they may appear because the nuns, the highly contentious nuns, and, and you can't read this without a nun-nun pun. So let me point out that it's none as in people claiming no religion or no specific denomination. <laughs> now, a little over a quarter of them claim to attend church regularly. So it's not quite as bad. However, we know that a lot of people claim to be Catholic, Jewish, whatever it may be, Christian, obviously, and haven't gone to church in three years. So in some ways, it's not quite as dire as they're making out. In some ways, it could actually be much, much, much mm-hmm. worse. Uh, but it, yeah, it's to, to see the rise of this because they, they don't want to be affiliated with it. And, and Russell Moore has that in his piece. And Tim Keller was on a podcast. And I really can't remember which one it was. But he was talking about, yeah, you know, in where, where he was in Manhattan, People may believe like every, I mean, they may be conservative, you know, reformed Christians who believe everything about the Christian faith, everything socially that, that a Christian would likely believe in, uh, th- that is on the political issue, but they just really don't want to be the quote, like white evangelical group they, because they just see that as a political group. And again, for that group as a self-identification group, something like 30% of those people never attend church. So it's, it's a disconnect in the way mm-hmm. it sounds. So it's, uh, but yeah. It's a strange, it's a strange time to see it go below fifty. Uh, in Europe, I think it's around ten, give or take. In most countries, I think Australia and Canada are a little higher. Keller was a little more hopeful. I think he pegged it somewhere between twenty-five and thirty. So, which is, I think, what we talked about on our COVID uh, one about the future of community. But it's, it, it's a big change, and, and and this really made waves. And I would recommend if people are interested in kind of the political realm, go check out the five thirty-eight podcast, and maybe we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, obviously not a Christian perspective, but they, they kind of break down the groups. And uh, it was interesting. I think they must have uh, must have listened to some Modern Cloister because they even mentioned some books we mentioned <laughs> on our future community episode. They, and, you they know, did, yeah. Big, hey, they research well. Big, super popular, well, so. famous podcast is definitely <laughs> listening to us. It's at least fun to think that for sure. But the, but so. they really dove into the whole episode. I mean, that's how big this is, mm. and I think it's something, something we're thinking about. So. Yeah. That's our item today. Yep, that's our number one. So number two has to do with um, the recent announcement from the White House that Biden is not going to be raising the refugee ceiling, which is essentially the number of refugees that are allowed to come into the U.S. each year to be resettled. Now, the reason this is a big deal is because one of Biden's campaign promises was to raise this number quite drastically in the coming year. As many of you may remember, during the Trump presidency, he slashed the number drastically and brought it to its all-time low. Right now, it is set at about 15,000, which, again, is by tens of thousands lower than any other year on record since the Refugee Act and the Refugee Resettlement Program began 
which was back in, in 1980. And interestingly, when Biden was a senator, he was one of the original co-sponsors of the Refugee Act as it was going through um, and being made into a program that we have today. And so during the campaign season, a lot of the communities that's, that support these efforts were very hopeful that shortly after taking on the presidency that his administration would would raise that. And he at one point had pledged to raise it to 125,000, which is a huge jump back up in the direction where it used to be. If I'm not mistaken, during Obama's presidency, it was around the 110 I think I saw his last year was, yeah, was 110. which I think at that point was, was the all-time high. And Biden had pledged to, to re- and state that that level of care for for refugees and, and our commitment to, to being a nation that welcomes people. Now, after that announcement was made earlier in the month of April, there were a lot of groups that work in this space that immediately took action and started advocating and having discussions. And there was a, an emergency call, I believe, I read one, one report where the administration gathered some of these groups to talk about what was coming next. And he has since pledged to increase that number as early as next month. So we are hopeful that that will happen. And I believe the number I saw was about 62,000 was the number that he had talked about raising it to first. Um, So not sure that we'll make it to the entire initial campaign pledge, but we are hopeful that within the next month we'll see another announcement. Now, one of the things that is really important for us to think about in this space, and the reason why we should care about this as Christians, is because of the nine agencies in the United States that resettle refugees, six out of those nine are faith-based organizations, and many of them are evangelical in nature. And there are some common misconceptions about some of these processes. It's an entirely separate process from any of the asylum seekers that come through at our borders. It is, at most times, about a two-year process to be resettled in our country from another country. And it's one of the, I would say it's probably if not the highest vetting process, it is one of the highest vetting processes for anybody entering the country at all. And so it's it's been set up over these past decades to be safe, to be secure, to be a process that, that really works. And it's actually not handled from the resettlement process by the federal government. It's handled by agencies that contract. And there are many mm-hmm. that are evangelical in nature. And past that, I would say, as evangelicals, there are so many passages and calls in scripture to care for the aliens and the sojourners among you. I mean, we were just talking about this earlier. Um, I don't know if you know any passages off the top of your head that speak to <laughs> it, but there are just so many um, that I think there's some real implications for us as believers and how we should enter into that. What would you say? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a lot of the calls in, in the Old Testament to, to care for the sojourners. Um, you know, as, as you were in Egypt and, and coming out of Egypt, and, and of course, there's you know, different time, there were no borders in that kind of sense, but there are clearly people who were not part of your group and you you were supposed to care for them. And there are stories of of refugees in the Bible, whether they're, um, you know, kind of Joseph and his family going to Egypt. And then of course, um, Naomi and Ruth, Ruth, you know, they left. And so of course that doesn't mean, you you know, people can make too much of that. I've been, I've seen people really like oversimplify it for political purpose and say the whole story of the Bible is a story of refugees. It's not, it's the Mm -hmm. redemptive history and the work of Christ. But, but, but clearly caring for refugees and accepting refugees in whatever you think about illegal immigration or legal immigration, this is something different. And those are hot political issues, you know, going back to Bush and well, much farther than that. But even under Bush, from Bush to Obama, there wasn't much refugee resettlement 
change. It wasn't really considered political until really a lot of the rhetoric about immigration in general came uh, with the Trump administration. So like we said, it was, it's, was it six are faith-based? And to be clear, that's, that's one Jewish resettlement group and five Christian groups. Mm-hmm. So, and, and we worked with one of them, um, called world relief world relief yeah which i've I've been connected to for several years i've done some Mm -hmm. volunteering with them and and they're a great organization and i'll put a link to their website in the show notes because if you if you happen to want to learn more about the work that they do it's a great place to start they also authored a book that released several years ago called seeking refuge and i'll link to it as well it is a hugely helpful stepping point into some of these conversations and how we should think about it as Christians and how we should enter into these these spaces and these conversations well. And so I encourage you to, to think about that because it is a really big issue. And maybe next month we'll come back with uh, an update that things have, have yeah, changed and, and, and we're again, back this, up. Yeah, this could be a, a whole thing, but it's it was cut down so much in the last administration that the Atlanta office actually had it closed, yes. which is unfortunate. A lot of people don't know right outside of Atlanta, a little city called Clarkston, is one of the most, I think per square mile, has the most languages and most foreigners mm-hmm. in the world. And we've been a part of two different churches that do ministry down there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you're right. having the world brought to you by God's providence, we believe, to come. Like, we, we don't have to travel to countries you've never heard of. There are 70, 80-something different languages mm-hmm. in this. Like, I went and helped uh, build a community garden so that some of these people could eat. And I got to meet just a random assortment of people who really, they couldn't speak English or anything yet. And it's it's really amazing because there's plenty of ministers and groups and people who were welcoming these people and, and trying to help them. And it's, it's really something we should care about, and it should not be political. It's a completely different process mm-hmm. than the the asylum, like Chris has said, and, and the, the immigration, immigration, illegal immigration. Some of these people wait like 18 years in a camp. Oh I think goodness, we met yeah. someone with one of our churches where— uh, he did he become a minister or maybe he became active but anyway he met his wife it, like they grew up in a camp and they met their wife i think they started their family there before yeah. they were allowed in here and came to atlanta so yeah i mean it's one of those things people don't often realize that there are often entire lifespans spent mm-hmm. in refugee camps on the borders of nations that they're trying to escape because people feel like they have no other recourse things are that bad where they are that they must leave but if they don't have anywhere to go they have to sit and wait and these camps are in other countries to mm-hmm. be clear so i mean they could be in like bhutan or nepal yeah. and they are they are in fenced off areas just waiting for us to bring them here where they can start a new life yeah. and as we'd like to do is give them the gospel. So absolutely, uh, we'll keep an eye on this and hopefully have some updates. Yep. So next story we have, and this is what I'm going to toss over to Kevin, is to give us an update on some um, some medical ethics issues that have surfaced this month as well. Yeah. I saw someone say it's always bad when the article starts with medical ethicists are concerned. And uh, it was announced, oh gosh, I want to say out of Japan, that they were doing a human, and I forget which type of monkey, but a monkey hybrid embryo. And that the embryo was living up to about 15 days. And, and obviously, this this there's been embryos for research before. Things have done human mice. They've done human some other things. And, and the goal here is that you actually will grow a body. And that's why they're trying to do, you know, primates, monkeys. Um, I guess they'll move up to great apes. So and it's kind of a weird twist. Uh, a lot of countries and I think the European Union have given some levels of rights, believe it or not, to... Uh, great apes so they actually can't do that of course they can take the human embryo so and that's and that's part of what we're looking at here's a problem because we believe that as a human right and so their point or their goal here is to grow these into bodies so that they can have organs 
um, and that's for, for transplants. And so there's just huge implications, uh, ethical issues as, mm-hmm. as Christians. I mean, we're creating a life that's, I mean, I don't even know what this means. Well, and so far, it's not even really, you know, they, they're not viable. They end up dying within within weeks because it, you you can't mix that type of genetic material. But if somehow they crack the code or figure out a way with technology to do it, we're talking about some serious, I mean, you're creating a, a non-existent animal to create a life just to harvest organs. And it's, um, man, it's something. And, and it blew up earlier in the month and some couple people weighed in and then it's just, it's just disappeared. So this is something we're keeping our eye on, but yeah, hopefully it'll just disappear and stay disappeared. <laughs> well, and even, and, and then before we move on the, uh, even other scientists who aren't necessarily coming from a religious perspective are saying like, okay, you're creating these things and they're these embryos and only last for two weeks and you're doing some level of research, but is that really necessary? Is this really what we're trying to do? Like, again, the, the ethics of it from, from the broad spectrum, people all over Christian, non-Christian, religious, irreligious are just, it's very disconcerting for everyone. So moving from organ harvesting to women, songwriters yes. i was going to show you the types of varying stories that we're going to bring <laughs> one that stuck out to me this month is about women songwriters specifically in the worship music arena i listened to a podcast um i listened to a couple of podcasts about worship and about songwriting and about music in general and there was an interview that i listened to this past month where the the podcast was was talking with a woman who is She's, I believe right now, a grad student at a university in Canada, and as part of her study, she looked at women writers in worship music, in contemporary worship music, and based on her research and study of the the writers who are associated with the top songs being sung in churches right now, was able to note that since the 1980s and 90s to today, that women songwriters have actually lost influence in the songwriting space. And so, of course, that piqued my interest. And I thought, well, I have to keep listening and, and you know, learn more and figure out what she was saying and where she was going with some of this. And so, so some of her data was relatively new and she was going to be pursuing additional study as some of the reasons behind some of this. But I thought I'd share some of the top level data just to have a broad picture of, of what this what this looks like and what this means for our churches. The data that she used was essentially taking the top 25 lists that have been published by CCLI every year. Now, CCLI is essentially the licensing company that if a church uses a song on a Sunday morning, they report it to this entity for tracking purposes, for publishing rights, and that sort of thing. So each year they release the top 25 songs by what is being used in churches. And that is the data set that she used to track that. And what she was able to show was that over the course of these four decades, that women have had a a smaller percentage of the songs associated on those lists. Now, there's multiple different reasons why this could be. Some of that's going to be explored. But I thought at a top level that it was really interesting. And one of the main things that has happened in the industry that I have been aware of as I've been tangential to it for many years is that in those early decades of the contemporary Christian worship music as we think of it, there used to be primarily solo songwriters, and that has shifted to more of the co-writing, collaborating spaces. And within that, one of the biggest data points that she showed was that what used to, if you were to take all the all the songwriters that contributed writing to worship songs in, in the 1980s and 90s, about half were women, maybe half were men who were in those co-writes, whereas now it's only it's about 92% men and 8% women. And this data was a really interesting 
place for her to start some of this additional exploration. And there's a lot of different reasons past that of, of some of the implications for how songs are chosen and, you know, radio play and all of that. But one of the things that she mentioned in passing that I thought was interesting and not specifically even just about women, but part of the whole industry, and Kevin, I know you, you've had some thoughts on this, is that of those top 25 in the recent years, they've actually been less tied to independent co-writes and projects. And 60-something percent of those songs are now tied to five specific mega churches that are influencing mm-hmm. our music, too which just has huge implications for how we're selecting and, and vetting and being gatekeepers for some of the music as well. Sure, because they're not coming from a... And, and this is interesting. While I was picking up our, our boys today, I was listening to another podcast, and they were actually talking about this consolidation agency issue within a publisher for writers uh, for, for movies and TV shows. And, and actors have this issue, and athletes have kind of had this issue where it's this weird agency-publisher hybrid. So this is happening in everything, and so, of course, this trend is being enveloped here, and, and obviously it's, it's being detrimental for, I guess, all art, really. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, of course, it's affecting here, but we, we don't we don't want – ah, I'm trying to, trying to be polite here. I'm trying to say the nice thing. The songs we sing in church aren't supposed to be the fun, poppy ones. Mm-hmm. They are supposed to have a theological purpose, a biblical purpose. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to praise God or lament or thank God. We are worshiping God. That is the point. It's not supposed to be popping fun. Now, it can be, obviously. There's some great songs, and you can just get on YouTube and find cool people doing, you know, guitar, ukulele, whatever, with old hymns. So that's that's not my point. But the consolidation of five people, and it's not, you know, maybe 70 years ago, you said, well, there were five denominations that put out their five hymn books, but those would have been writers from all over the place. They would have been reviewed by people with with years of training and music ministry like they used to call it not mm-hmm. production and guitar playing as well as other pastors and theological boards and this consolidation into these just powerful because uh, these groups aren't part of anyone they're just yeah they're production companies that are running music for us as a commercial enterprise yeah. i mean an example if you're not familiar with what we mean by some of these these mega church movements it would be things like hillsong and bethel and elevation and names like that um, i don't have the full list of the five that are on this list but it's groups like that um but that's also just a shorthand when you hear uh, especially someone from a liturgical if you're listening to a podcast or a pastor who comes from like an anglican or reformed presbyterian they'll mention um is it LA or they just say California? But they say California, Atlanta, and Australia. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of shorthand, or Nashville, obviously, too. They'll definitely say it. But that's what they're mm-hmm. saying is these huge groups. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of things that we'll probably unpack, um, as, as we say in the church, unpack things mm-hmm. over the next couple months and some of these about some of these specific topics. But one thing, just to go back to the, the women songwriters thing, one, one statistic that they talked about on this podcast is we're thinking about the voices that are starting to influence our church and making sure that, that women voices are heard is that when you compare who's writing the music that is being sung to who is singing the music in the churches, and you look at a, a comparable data point about women in the church as of 2018, um, they pointed out that in U.S. Protestant churches, about 70% of the of the regular congregants were females. And so we have this situation right now where, where most of the writers are men, and they're writing for a congregation that is majority women. And so that means male-led songs in male keys, and it, 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 can, it can create some disconnect at times. Um, it's not you know, an all-across-the-board all type thing, but it is interesting in, in that juxtaposition 
of the people who are who are creating it and the people who are actually using it to worship as well. And so the goal here wouldn't, of course, to be to, to take over and to do more, but to create a little more space for those voices to be within the church as well, from my perspective. Well, historically, the, the old school hymns, I should ask you this beforehand, sometimes have multiple parts. So there'd be keys for women, keys for men, or so we'd have everyone singing something or no. <laughs> it kind of depends. There's harmonies, okay. which is probably what you're thinking that's, of. I'm thinking harmonies. But that's not that. necessarily the, the, the lead key. That All the right, I shouldn't jump into in, music so. thing. That's not my... But <laughs> we, we, we will definitely be doing one-on yeah. worship. I don't know if that'll be a one-off type thing or maybe a whole series, but we will definitely yes, at some uh, point. come back to to this on the impact of, of this and, and the production companies. All right, so last story of this episode is going to be about... I'm just going to call it Dawkins and toss it over to you. So tell oh, us. Because you, you don't remember. You're just looking at our notes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so looking at some our of notes. you. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a little bit humorous, but I, I think it's something we need to take seriously too. And I don't mean this to be derisive to, to him or the or the group. And I think it's easy to mock, but some of you probably saw, especially if you're on the cesspool, it is Twitter. But Richard Dawkins, a uh, very famous, outspoken atheist. I don't know what he does for a living. I think, I think he's a professor of some sort, but he's mostly famous. Um, kind of the leader of the tough guy internet atheist. Uh, he's really good at punching straw man, and uh, it's kind of a new atheist movement. He's, pro- I guess, he's probably the biggest person out there for it. He, uh, in a tweet, uh, essentially uh, went to what was her name, Rachel Del Delhauser, Doe Dohauser, whatever her name was, um, a couple years ago. The 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 white lady in I want to say Oregon or Washington, who was the head of the chapter of the the local NAACP, and claimed to be black, and um, you know, as, as he does as a professor and, and someone who likes to attack people to get, quote, discussion going, he said, hey, she claimed to be black even though she's white. Trans people claim to be, you know, a man even though they're genetically a woman. What's the difference? Discuss. Now, he is either part of a group, I think he's part of a group, but I don't know how involved he is, called uh, the American Humanist uh, Association. And of course, the humanist part is, you know, part of the anti-religion. Like, ah, oh, we have we have no creeds, we have no doctrine. We're just free-thinking people, right? Well, when this tweet came out a few days later, of course, it, you know, I don't know how viral it went, but the, the certain people saw it, uh, and who didn't like it, they called his question and discussion point um, hurtful, damaging. Uh, they call it, you know, hateful and demeaning. And and this is in their press release, the the American Human, and so they kicked him out. And he won the Humanist of the Year Award, I want to say in 95, 96 or something. And so they actually stripped that title from him. And the reason why we bring this up is, is you know, people claim that they're not living by doctrine, they're not doing something. But, but he was literally just excommunicated. He was kicked out. And of course, there's the whole, you know, trans, maybe we'll do one on that, that later, all the kind of complicated, and it's very complicated, very damaging issues for everyone. And, uh, but no one answered him was a big part. It, it was just straight attacks. And I really think it's going to be the biggest challenges to the church going forward, far bigger than uh, gay marriage, divorce, any of the other sexual liberation things in the past. Um, but it's, you know, you want to sit back and be like, ha, look at him being kicked out from the, he was labeled a heretic. And, and it's, you kind of want to mock him, but, you, but it's something to take seriously because this, to tie it back into our first thing, as, as less and less Americans and, and less kind of the Western world is involved in church, this, this humanist, secular enlightenment thinking is going to be the number one way of thinking. And you just saw someone ask a question, and sure, they were called bigoted and all those sort of things, but they were literally kicked out of society, and, and an award given them 25, 26 years ago was taken away. 
uh, for for asking a question. And so if that doesn't have like deep fundamentalist religious overtones, all while denying and mocking religion, it's, the irony is palpable. And I also just think it's going to be a huge, huge thing going forward. Mm-hmm. If you don't follow the doctrine as prescribed in their, in their creed, which is not laid out anywhere necessarily, um, you're going to be in trouble. Yep. Oh, that's a good one. Well, that's probably where we're going to close for today. We hope you enjoyed our In the News for this month. If you did, we encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to us. And make sure you connect with us on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Carissa Turner. And you can check out my website, carissaturner.com. I'm on mondaymorningtheologian.com. Trying to focus on that right now. Trying to do a little more writing. Uh, It's not going super well. But here we are. All right. Hope everyone enjoyed. And, and again, we're trying to do this a little shorter, a little shorter ones. We did a big deep dive last week. If you like this, let us know. If you like the deep dive, let us know. Uh, if you think they both are terrible, let us know because, yes. you know, we're trying to do better. Yes, so. I, and you can let us know by sending us an email at moderncloister at gmail.com. You can also find the link to that at moderncloister.com. Check out the show notes for links to uh, all of the, hopefully, publications and articles and books that we mentioned. And we'll see you next time. All right. Bye.